This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This topic is one that, from the scientific community's perspective, is exceedingly important. Um, there have been, um, I was just sort of studying up on this a bit, The question of climate change and a possibility of a human role in that goes back for well over 100 years. The scientific community um, is largely in agreement that um, humans are causing warming of the planet and the planet is, in fact, warming in ways that, and the climate is changing in ways that could be severely problematic. As I mentioned in our announcement for this program, that is not necessarily the view of the new administration coming in in Washington. And I say that only partially facetiously, because I think this recent election is a reminder of something that is terribly important for all of us and for the kinds of things we do with this program. I, I, think I, I don't think you would disagree with me if I said that Almost everybody who was interested in voting in this last election was absolutely convinced that if their side lost, it would be the end of civilization as we know it. And it may be that one side is right about that and the other side was wrong, but more likely good people, thoughtful people, had reasons that if we could only understand what they were, both sides could see better what each was was trying to get at. We live in really confrontational, difficult times, and the purpose of our programs is to try and get beyond that, to have thoughtful conversations, to try and hear from everybody so that we can do better with this. And in that spirit, I'm going to be positive and note that the president-elect has recently met with Al Gore, some of you may have just seen that, to talk about climate change, and that may be um, of interest to him. However, whether or not you believe the planet is warming because of human activity. What should we do if it does warm to the point that the polar ice caps are melting, sea levels are rising, and the climate is changing in severe ways? Are there things we could do to protect against that? And that's going to be part of the conversation tonight. So our speaker tonight, we are extraordinarily lucky to have uh, Margaret Leinen, who is the director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography and vice chancellor for marine sciences at UC San Diego. And also I learned just recently maybe one of her most important um, claims to fame for this conversation and given the nature of the conversation is that early on in her career she was interested in going into criminal law. Um, She decided not to do that um, and instead became a scientist. Um, Also, I know her from the Ethics Center because as we were revisiting the question of the future of the Ethics Center in the last couple of years, I went to the various deans and vice chancellors at UCSD to ask for support, and she was one of the first to jump immediately to say, absolutely, happy to do so. So um, she's a wonderful contributor to the Ethics Center and to this conversation, so I hope you'll join me in welcoming uh, Margaret Lyman. Thank you. So uh, I was asked to talk about a really interesting issue, which is this idea of geoengineering, climate engineering, uh, climate intervention, and the ethics of that. Now, I'm a scientist, so I know something about climate. I know something about ideas for... Uh, taking action on climate, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. I am not an ethicist. 
Uh, I've never even had an ethics course. So what I really am going to do is talk to you a little bit about where we are with climate, why people are talking about the idea of intervening, what, uh, what kinds of ideas they have, and then there has been a very active scholarly discussion about the ethics of doing this. So I'll sort of tell you some of the uh, approaches that people have raised in raising ethical questions, and then we can talk. So what is this thing? Uh, a lot of people have called taking action on climate this way geoengineering. There's actually a field of engineering that has to do with things like building earthen dams and whatnot that has nothing to do with climate that is called geoengineering, and they're really not very happy that people are talking about uh, intervening with the climate and calling it this. So the people that, that do research on this intervention or engineering tend to call it climate engineering or climate intervention. And what it is is the deliberate modification of an element of the climate system on a large scale in order to avoid dangerous impacts of climate change. And we'll kind of unpack that a little bit in a minute. So these are some of the things that I'll, I'll touch on. Why are rational people thinking about climate intervention? What, what kind of ideas are being discussed? On what basis do think people think this might work? Uh, what research needs to be done? And what are the ethical issues? So this idea of actively intervening in climate has been around for a long time. It was actually uh, mentioned uh, almost uh, 40 years ago now uh, when the Climate Change Act forming the U.S. Global Change Research Program uh, was enacted. But people started really talking about it as though it weren't pie in the sky when uh, when Paul Crutzen, who was a Nobel laureate, he won his Nobel Prize for being one of the three people that identified the cause and what would happen uh, for the chlorofluorocarbons that are related to the ozone hole. And he, after that, became a UCSD professor in environmental science. And in 2006, he wrote a very provocative paper uh, in which he advocated for the study of geoengineering. And specifically, he advocated for study of the introduction of aerosols, not spray cans, but small particles, into the stratosphere to cool the atmosphere. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, too. But it's not every day that a Nobel Prize winner wades in to a topic like that. So people took it very seriously, and Paul is uh, an incredibly serious person. It was a very thoughtful paper. But it was so controversial that the journal uh, said, we're not going to publish it as a scholarly paper, although it was reviewed. They said, we're, gonna, uh, we're going to... Um, published this as an editorial essay. And then they asked the um, chair, the president of the National Academy of Sciences, to write an introduction to that. 
uh, to explain why it was all right that we talk that we even talk about this. That's how loaded a topic this is. And my experience with it is that I worked in one of the fields uh, that's directly related to a technique of climate intervention, and I'll, I'll get to that. And about uh, eight years ago, I uh, was asked to start a nonprofit that would talk about how we might govern research on this so that it would be safe. It was called the Climate Response Fund. And uh, let me tell you, it was a very uncomfortable experience. This is, this is really a loaded topic. And uh, I have a lot of knife scars in my back from that time. But I'm still here. Okay, so, you know, what's happening with this issue? Uh, this uh, little slide shows uh, from 1970 to 2010 the increase in greenhouse gases. And this color down here is CO2. And I, I show it this way to show you two things. One is... There are a lot of other greenhouse gases, all of those other colors, the nitrous oxide, methane, other fluorochlorocarbons, and other complicated molecules. But the one that's increasing the most uh, is CO2. So that's why you always hear this concentration on CO2. And this is another way of looking at this. This is just the CO2 portion of that curve. And one of the really interesting things that you'll see, this is since 1990. Uh, it's been going up since long before that. You'll see that it's sort of leveled off here. That's the impact of the recession and the slowdown of the Chinese economy. Uh, we're the two biggest emitters. About five years ago, China passed the U.S., in emissions. And so uh, it had been increasing by 3% a year during the early 2000s. It's sort of leveled off now. So why are we worried about it if it's leveled off? It's because we're still putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. And that CO2 has a lifetime in the atmosphere of hundreds of years. So if we never emit another molecule of CO2, all the CO2 that we have that's still causing all the problems will be with us for at least 300 years. So even though things have leveled off and we're still emitting and we've still got this legacy of carbon. So you've heard a lot of discussion about the Paris Agreement and trying to bend the curve, trying to not put so much CO2 into the atmosphere. This complicated diagram is uh, an effort uh, on the part of science to look at a, a variety of different uh, scenarios for how we could do that. So each color represents uh, about 50 different models, all focused on a particular type of scenario. So the top one is basically we don't do anything about CO2. We keep growing, we keep using coal, we keep using fossil fuels. It sort of bends over because we start running out and the population 
starts uh, leveling off uh, at uh, 2100. And it results, that sort of scenario, do nothing, results in a temperature increase at the end of the century of somewhere between uh, 3 to 5 degrees centigrade. Uh, so that's roughly 7 to 11 degrees Fahrenheit. This curve is a somewhat more aggressive direction, and it says that somewhere in the second half of the 21st century that we will start really putting a lot more renewables in place, but that we don't do it now. It's sort of the everybody gets to grow their economy, and then when their economy is grown, they, they say, oh, we'll do some renewables. The third one here is, well, we're a lot more serious about that, and so we'll really put a lot of uh, renewables out there, but we'll still burn a lot of fossil fuel. And the blue one is the uh, aggressive approach, which says we will start uh, replacing fossil fuel with renewables immediately, uh, and we'll do as much as we can do without harming economies. And this leads to an increase of somewhere between 1 and 2 degrees centigrade. Several years ago, the governments of the world said, looking at what, they, what scientists had told them about climate change impacts, that 2 degrees was a threshold it wasn't a scientific threshold. It was a political threshold for what level of climate impacts uh, they wanted to um, accept. So this is the famous, this is what we have to do to get to that famous no more than two degrees centigrade uh, increase in temperature. So a year ago in Paris, uh, 195 nations agreed to try to do as much as they could right now, and they individually determined what they would do. Part of the U.S. agreement was the U.S.-China bilateral on climate change. It calls for aggressive reduction of the use of coal. That's the biggest piece of it. It talks about other things, too, but basically says uh, we're really going to turn the corner on using coal. So that was one of our contributions. It wasn't the only one. So everybody did what they could. And this is the estimate of what we would get from the Paris Agreement, about three degrees centigrade at the end of the century. So it, it's much more than, than the politically decided two degrees. Or even um, last year, uh, many countries said we should aim for one and a half, which is really down even further down here. So I want to give you that as sort of a backdrop to this whole issue. This is tough work. We didn't get to this point in five years or ten years, and we're not going to get out of this situation in five years or ten years. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we can't get there. It's just it's hard work. And I want to also point out, this is the zero line, and you see these emissions reductions uh, are go below zero. What that implies is that somewhere down the line, in order to get there, we have to actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere. So this is, uh, uh, it's aggressive work to get there. 
So what happens if we do that? This is a map based on all of those models of what the temperature would look like in the last two decades of this century uh, compared to the last two decades of the last century uh, if we take all of those steps. And these yellow colors are basically a degree uh, to two degrees of temperature increase. It's highest over the continents. The very highest is up in the Arctic. This is what happens if we don't do anything. Uh, these are very uh, substantial increases in, in temperature. These are all in degrees centigrade. So 10 degrees Fahrenheit, 12 degrees Fahrenheit, etc. I think most people don't think, we're not thinking that we're down that path. Everybody wants to do something else. But remember, this, this involves actively taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, and that's even in some areas higher than that two-degree threshold. So it's going to take a lot of work. And what's also projected are substantial changes in precipitation. This is not just about warming. It's also about precipitation. And the yellow colors are percentages decrease of precipitation. This first one here is uh, 5%. Down here we're talking about 15% difference in precipitation. And you'll notice that where we are, except in the fall when we get some of our rain, we're looking at very substantially lower precipitation. So this is what the worry is. And then there are a lot of concerns about tipping points. And tipping points would be something like um, the Arctic Ocean um, decreases in uh, summer ice uh, to the point that the ocean warms enough and we don't get winter ice. So an ice-free Arctic. Uh, or something like um, dieback of the Amazon, or uh, changes in the volume of glaciers on land that result in very rapid sea level change. So these are all sort of things that we don't, we cannot predict, but we know that they're possible based on our knowledge of the past. So I want to emphasize that, again, even when emissions are stabilized at really low levels, 90% less than uh, uh, present, we will break through that two-degree threshold, and we don't know exactly what that implies. So in order to do that, we would have to take CO2 actively out of the atmosphere. So we'd have to find some way to remove it and then do something with it. So these are the kinds of concerns that have led people to say we need to look at some kind of climate intervention. Now, this is just a, a little cartoon from 1847 with Atlas uh, moving the earth with uh, the lever long enough. Uh, but uh, the idea of uh, looking at, at modifying the climate or an element of the climate falls into two uh, different possible areas. One is modifying or managing the amount of solar radiation that the atmosphere absorbs. The other is modifying or managing the, uh, the carbon cycle to actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere. So let's talk first about the idea of cooling the earth through uh, some means of intervention. 
Again, the idea is that we increase the proportion of solar radiation somewhere in the atmosphere that reflects back out into space so that it's not warming the atmosphere. And these uh, techniques have a cooling effect because less solar radiation is available in the atmosphere to warm it up. Uh, they could certainly affect other parts of the climate system, and they do, but that's the idea. And the idea of, mo and we call that modifying the albedo, the reflectivity of the, of the planet. And the idea of modifying the albedo, especially with the idea of putting aerosols into the stratosphere, comes from something that happens naturally. That's Mount Pinatubo uh, exploding in 1982. And it injected huge quantities of sulfur dioxide into the upper atmosphere and the stratosphere. And sulfur dioxide is a compound that has high reflectivity, and, and as a result, the atmosphere reflects sunlight back into space. And these uh, SO2 uh, uh, molecules nucleate aerosols, so the, the molecule is reflective and it also causes small um, other molecules to aggregate around us and it reflects light back into space. And after eruptions like this, the Earth actually cools for three or four years. So this is, uh, I said uh, 82 was 92. This is 1990 to 1994, and the dark curve here is the temperature change for the whole globe. It's referring to 1990, and this is the time of the Mount Pinatubo eruption. So as you can see, it actually decreased global atmospheric temperatures by about between a half a degree and a degree not just for a short time, but for a couple of years after the eruption because the aerosols stay in the atmosphere. And this little graph uh, shows, if you take all of the big eruptions that we've had since 1880, Krakatoa, Santa Maria, Agung, El Chicon, and Pinatubo, and you line them all up and look at how much they changed the temperature, this is 0.2, So not all of them were as big as Pinatubo. It was really big. But the average of those shows the atmosphere cooling by three-tenths of a degree, maybe two-tenths of a degree over years. So this is the idea behind solar radiation management. We put something up into space that would reflect sunlight away. Now, all of that CO2, and there, there are some other ideas, but I'm not, this isn't a lecture just on, on uh, geoengineering. So the other thing that CO2 in the atmosphere does is it dissolves in the ocean. So about 26% of the CO2 that we put in the air dissolves in the ocean. And when it dissolves in the ocean, uh, the CO2 is a weak acid for the chemists, and it uh, makes the ocean slightly more acidic. And with time, that has already begun to affect the ecosystem. For example, off Washington and Oregon State, uh, whenever that, uh, that water in the upper 200 meters or so of the ocean upwells, 
onto the continental margin. The, all of the um, shellfish uh, aquaculture that's growing oysters and mussels and clams has to pull their oysters, mussels, and clams out because uh, the water is acidic enough so that, that um, it's not that they dissolve the shell of an oyster, but the oysters can't reproduce and they, and, uh, they, can't, uh, they can't regenerate. So that's already happening. The other thing that we worry about is what this will do, for example, to corals. So this little map shows the saturation of uh, an, a component of calcium carbonate uh, called aragonite. And aragonite is the hard stuff that corals make their skeletons out of. And what it's looking at is how much there is in the water and whether that is stable for uh, corals. So anything that is green uh, to uh, red is adequate for corals. And everything that's blue uh, or darker green is inadequate. So the reason that corals aren't in the, uh, they're only in the tropics is not because of the temperature. It's because of the, the saturation of this component in the water. So this was what we uh, know that it was like from 1765 before the Industrial Revolution. This was 1995, so you can see that it's getting less hospitable for uh, corals. This is our estimate of 2040, if, if we just keep putting CO2 into the atmosphere as we are now. So you can see that only a few places are even adequate, no less uh, optimal. And if we continued to 2100, uh, we'd have a situation where there were very few places in the ocean that corals could live. So that's a pretty massive change in the ecology. So this kind of gets to that idea of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And remember I said, we're stuck with what's there unless we do something about it. So we're, uh, if we don't take CO2 out of the atmosphere, we're going to continue to see the ocean become a little bit more acidic every year. Uh, island nations have led the international community in calling for action on acidification. And the only way to reduce this is by some manipulation of the carbon system. So that's the other geoengineering idea. We could capture CO2 directly from the atmosphere and then do something with it. That takes a lot of energy to do. We could sequester biomass so that it couldn't, um, it couldn't decompose and the CO2 couldn't go back into the atmosphere. Or we could manipulate photosynthesis in the ocean, which draws, remember, photosynthesis uses CO2, gives off oxygen. So if we could increase the photosynthesis of the ocean, we could pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequester it. So there are a lot of ideas uh, in each one of these things that I'm sort of, you know, giving you just a postage stamp view of what are whole areas of research. Um, so there are a lot of people who have designed uh, conceptual tools for removing CO2 from the air. Uh, 
these are images of phytoplankton in the water. Uh, what happens when they photosynthesize is they're then eaten by zooplankton, and they, se they sequester uh, CO2 down deep into the ocean. And there have actually been um, 12 experiments in the ocean looking at how you might uh, fertilize it to create uh, more uh, photosynthesis. And they were done to understand, they weren't done for geoengineering, they were done for understanding basic processes. So, there have been, remember I said that in 2009, uh, Paul Crutzen called for research on this. Uh, 2006, sorry. In 2009, uh, when Obama's presidential science advisor, John Holdren, took his position, in one of his first interviews, he said he didn't think geoengineering could be taken off the table. And what he meant was, we, we may need this sometime, so let's study it. That same year, the UK Royal Society, like our National Academy of Science, uh, did a study of geoengineering, which called for further research. Nobody was saying, go do this. They were saying, we better find out about it. Uh, that same year, the American Meteorological Society that represents uh, meteorology and weather science in the U.S. called for a research program. That was echoed by the American Geophysical Union, which represents atmosphere and ocean science. Uh, a group called the International Bios Geosphere Biosphere Program, uh, uh, international group that studies the impacts of climate change, um, called for research into this. And a couple years ago, our National Academy uh, called for research into geoengineering. So why do they think it's so important to do the research? The idea is that someday we might say we can't take any more and we want to do something, and if we haven't studied it, we won't know what the impacts are. Um, if we know something about it, we might uh, reduce the risk that some panicked government would say, uh, you know, my area, let's say you're uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and you're, it gets even warmer and drier than it is now, and that government says, let's put a little aerosol up in the, in the atmosphere, or we're, let's uh, remove CO2. Um, there's also the idea that some of these techniques, especially this one of putting aerosols in the stratosphere, are expensive, but they're not that expensive. You could put uh, the, enough aerosol up into the stratosphere for probably $80, $100 million. We, there are actually people who have that much money. Okay. And uh, the idea is that so, uh, we call it, remember Goldfinger, who was manipulating the, uh, uh, the gold uh, markets. The idea would be that somebody would take it on themselves uh, to try to do something. Certainly, there would be a lot of more knowledge of potential side effects and also the potential for maybe doing something tactical. So let's think about maybe the Arctic becoming ice-free, and if you could just shade the Arctic or reflect sunlight away, maybe you could make sure that the Arctic stayed ice-covered. So that's called tactical geoengineering. 
So would we need to know about these to evaluate them? We, know, we need to know how they work and if it's scalable and deployable and what would happen if we did it, not just to warming or uh, to CO2, but to ecosystems. Uh, and what happens if we stop uh, doing it? And how much does it cost? So there are scientific goals, and then there are goals like this that have to do with evaluating the techniques. So that's why scientists want to study this. Um, now there are the non-technical issues. So on what basis would policymakers decide to move forward? How much change would they have to see to decide to do something? How could you govern this? How could you make sure that uh, people didn't just go crazy with it? How do you manage the risk? What would you do if you were putting a little bit of aerosol up there and uh, it happened to be a winter that was really cold anyway because weather is different from climate. We have cold winters and warmer winters, even though uh, longer term uh, temperatures are increasing. So what if you did this in a year that happened to be a cold winter and you got uh, really bad weather in uh, Canada and New England and and people started suing you, saying, you know, uh, you caused my heating bill to double, or, you know, I fell on the ice, and it's all your fault. Uh, then there are the ethical questions, and because this is about that, I'm gonna, we're going to wait a minute and then go more into those. And there are sort of philosophical questions about the relationship between humans and nature. Do we have the right to do this? Um, and have we dealt with questions like this before? So uh, I, I just, uh, again, to say that at this point, nobody is talking about actually doing this. Uh, but they are talking about that it might have different goals. You know, um, I think the thing that the scientists are really afraid of is governments saying, well, let's do this instead of reducing emissions. It's just too hard to reduce emissions and it costs too much in terms of the economy. Uh, that's not a good reason to try to tinker with the, the climate. Uh, or to adjust the climate to some desired state, like pre-industrial CO2. But who gets to choose what the desirable state is? Or maybe it's to deal with a specific aspect of climate, of climate change, like the loss of summer Arctic sea ice. Or maybe it's plan B in case of a catastrophe. You know, the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, looks like it's going to fail. If the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, started moving quickly, uh, breaking off and going into the ocean, we would be looking at, at very substantial and quite rapid sea level rise on the order of uh, probably 10 feet. Uh, let's say that that happened before 2050. We'd probably be talking about 10 feet of sea level rise by 2050. Or maybe it's just, you know, maybe we could tinker enough while we're going through this economic change to more sustainable to keep ourselves comfortable. So there are a lot of motivations for it, too. Um, there have also been a lot of reports on how you might govern this. Who would get to pull the trigger or who would get to make decisions? And there's a whole list of 
of groups that have studied this and have suggested how you could govern it. Uh, so what's the situation now? In the U.S., there is no public funding for research on this at all. There are some small privately funded research programs on direct air capture, um, but there isn't any funding because it's the third rail of climate. Nobody wants to think about doing it, and you start talking about it, and immediately people say, oh, my gosh, you're tinkering with the environment. You know, uh, that's not a good idea, so we don't want to fund research on it. Elsewhere, uh, there are small uh, laboratory measurement programs and uh, some, a little modeling in Germany. Uh, an extremely small field experiment was uh, proposed for, and funded in UK. And when I mean small, I mean essentially they were going to release water, not sulfur dioxide aerosols or whatever, in order to try to brighten a uh, cloud over a very small area of uh, UK. In other words, sort of like uh, over La Jolla, not even over all of San Diego. And uh, when people heard about it, they went absolutely nuts, and that experiment never took place. Uh, and there's privately funded conceptual work on, on this, but uh, nothing, no field experiments have been done. So now let's just, I want to lay out some of the ethics questions that have been raised. The first, and so let's, right now we're just talking about research. Why has this been so hard with research, in addition to we don't even want to think about it? Uh, the first argument is what's called a moral hazard argument, and it is if climate intervention was researched and it was available, maybe policymakers would back off of the hard work of trying to reduce emissions. And so maybe they'd use it as an excuse not to reduce emissions. That's called a moral hazard. The second is that maybe doing research is the slippery slope to actually doing it. So would research lend an air of acceptability to doing this that would make policymakers less, less inclined to look at this with fear and loathing? So those are, those are two ethical questions about the research. Uh, on the other hand, um, we have had an individual who engaged in small-scale for-profit uh, experiment in the ocean. We've had a host of small companies formed to look at CO2 capture. Um, they haven't, nobody's deployed it yet. Um, is it ethical to refuse to do the research that would provide evidence of whether this was harmful uh, or whether um, we needed to worry about uh, even that level? Um, would such re research give us the knowledge that this was bad to arm us against that rogue player, green finger, who might want to recklessly do uh, experimentation. So those are some of the questions that come up about the research. And then there are questions about deployment. So the nations that have contributed the most to emissions, like the US and China, 
uh, and Europe are also the ones that are most likely to have the resources to actually engage in climate <coughs> intervention. So if they had, if they did the research and they had the knowledge, would this allow them to start doing some geoengineering or propose to do geoengineering without the consent of others, like all of the developing world who hasn't contributed uh, as much to the, the climate change issue. So another one is who gets to decide on the type of intervention, putting aerosols in the stratosphere versus um, fertilizing the ocean or the objective. Uh, those are all important questions. And uh, remember, if we implied solar radiation management, so we were just cooling the atmosphere, we would, and we were still emitting CO2, all of that would be building up. So if we stopped putting aerosols in the atmosphere, we'd have a huge backlash from all of the CO2, a rapid warming. So another ethical question about deployment. But then there are some others on the other side. If So let's say the, the West Antarctic ice sheet did start breaking down quickly, and we knew we were going to deal with many feet of sea level rise, displacing millions of people. Uh, a third of the U.S. population lives in the coast. Uh, trillions of dollars of property and economy and we had the technology to do something about it, is it ethical to refuse to consider cooling the climate over polar regions? Would, would people say, you know, I'm going to have to abandon my property, and you're telling me you won't do anything? Uh, so uh, questions like this are, are on the other side. I'm going to stop there and then say, what do you think we should be doing and you can discuss these issues. And I'm very, uh, this is really uh, an issue where it's the popular opinion about it that is so important to judge whether we will ever do research, no less whether we'll ever deploy this. So you have the say. Okay, so we're going to um, get started up now. Um, I'm going to uh, begin by asking a, a few questions that I hope might frame some of these issues because there are a lot that we might be considering. And the first one that comes to mind to me is that it's clear to, especially people who work in this field, that this is a massive intervention that we're talking about. I mean, as it is, we can't really well predict the climate we're going to have in San Diego tomorrow. And so the idea... The weather or, or tomorrow. The weather, okay. I'm sorry, the climate. climate. Okay, use, the, use the correct term here. The weather for tomorrow. Um, and so we know it's risky, and yet, as you pointed out, many people are saying this is something we should not take off the table. So given how massive that is and how worrisome it is, and given how divided our country is around what ends up being more a political issue than a scientific issue, can you perhaps summarize why it is that people, and I think this is true for most people in the room like me, we aren't climate scientists, and yet probably every one of us has really impassioned views about this. How can you, what can you say to somebody who is not a scientist to say why they should trust you in science on this issue? 
we know science has made some big mistakes. So this is a huge thing we're talking about doing. So why should we trust here? Well, I think that we have to draw a distinction between actually deploying climate engineering or geoengineering and doing research on it. Um, research need not be carried out at the level of uh, putting aerosols everywhere. Um, we don't even know some of the very basic things, like the difference between, you know, what's, what size of aerosols would be most effective uh, and so forth. And those sorts of things can be studied at a much smaller scale. Uh, so I look at the research on this being an insurance policy. So I pay insurance. I pay house insurance, car insurance. I'm in California, so I earthquake insurance. Um, I, uh, I've never had my house burned down. Uh, I've been in earthquakes, but never had the building fall down around me. And, uh, and I've never had to have a major claim against my auto insurance. And I still keep paying that money every year. <laughs> Why do I do that? It's because it's insurance in the case of something happening. And I look at the research as an insurance policy. It's not that we're deploying it, but it allows us to understand whether a technique would be effective, whether it would not, and it would start to tell us some of the impacts. So hopefully uh, we would never have to deploy this, but if we got to a point where people were calling for it, I would certainly hope we had some research on it before we just decided to go up and fill a, the cargo of a 747 with aerosol and just do it. So that's, that sounds excellent, but that brings me back to one of the questions you brought up, which I had not thought about very much. This is the, the, the example of this that uh, my wife was telling me about, that if you see a play and there's a gun in the first act, they will use the gun. It's going to become an important part of that play. So if, and what you pointed out is that there may be a risk that because we've done this research, because we've got this tool in our toolbox, we're going to use it. And so how do you balance that with the idea that it's simply good to do the research to be sure that we are ready? Well, I think you're an optimist because you're saying uh, we would find that we could use the tool. And uh, many of us are not convinced uh, that, that uh, the research would show that, we, that this would be uh, a good, uh, an effective weapon, to use your, your metaphor, because uh, there are so many um, other impacts of this. So, for example, um, uh, stratospheric aerosols uh, also have other kinds of side effects that we see during, um, during volcanic eruptions. And we, you know, we would need to know about those as well. The uh, fertilizing the ocean not only results in uh, drawing down CO2 and bringing it into, into the ocean, but locally it could result in lower oxygen concentrations. So I think that um, it's really, you know, if you had to, um, if you knew that that weapon in the play uh, would backfire or would jam, uh, 
and you learned that in the first act, you might not want to use it in the last act. Right. Well, that might be part of the part of the plot. Um, so, and I don't want to leave this other question. And I, maybe I should underline why I think it's an important question. We've had discussions in this setting before about climate change, and we've had incredible passion from the audience on either side of the issue. And I find it pretty astonishing to realize that nobody on either side of that issue in those conversations, for the most part, really understood or does climate science. They are trusting something that they've seen from others. So um, is it enough to simply say, well, the majority of scientists working on this, the vast majority, say it's right? What do you say to somebody that says, here's something to arm you for talking about this and the way to think about how you should interpret what comes out of the scientific community? Well, I think that um, I, I think you're absolutely right. We listen to and believe people we trust. And what makes us trust somebody? Uh, we know them. We know them personally. We know something about their, uh, you know, their their character. Uh, or we have come over some time to. Uh, uh, to form an opinion about them, or somebody that we trust trusts them. Um, I think there are three things that I think are really important to separate in the climate uh, issue. The issue of whether climate is changing, the issue of whether humans had something to do about it, and the issue of what we should do about it if we did. I think that uh, even 10 years ago, we were still seeing from many people, I don't believe that climate is changing. We don't see that very much anymore. There, people were starting to get to the point where people's personal opinion or the, the knowledge of their grandparents or their neighbors has shown them that, well, we just don't get cold weather like we used to, or, uh, you know, we're, we're having droughts that we never saw before. I grew up in the Midwest, uh, in uh, uh, Illinois, and when I was a little girl, I liked to garden, and on the back of the seed packet, it told you what uh, hardiness zone you were in, and that told you what, uh, how soon you could plant the seeds. My hometown is now, now two hardiness zones warmer than it was when I was a little girl. Now I'm old, but, you know, it's still. Uh, and as, as I say, uh, plants don't write papers. They don't get grants. They're not political. They just, you know, they grow. So I think our personal experience is leading us to climate is changing. The second question is, did we have something to do about it? And that's where a lot of uh, a lot of the debate is now saying, well, we've seen uh, climate change in the past, so why should we worry about this? Um, and uh, or um, you know, this is just natural variability. And that is a place where uh, scientists know more about it uh, than the average person and can show you in the historical record or in the, the uh, paleo record how quickly it's changing now. Uh, and more importantly, 
we can actually take the conditions of a hundred years ago and the the temp, you know the um, amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, the reflectivity of the atmosphere, uh, and so forth, and model what the climate was. And if we just try to bring that forward without CO2, we don't get the warming. You have to have the CO2 that we have put in the atmosphere in order to, jo- to get the climate that we have now, the climate change that we've seen over the last hundred years. But that doesn't mean that we have to immediately turn off the lights, um, stop driving cars, uh, not have economic growth. Um, I said at the beginning, we didn't get into this in five years, and we're not going to get out of it in five years. And I am a firm believer that we have to do things that make sense economically. And we're already seeing some of that happen. So right now, for example, China is the leading world producer of solar panels. Guess who is the leading consumer of solar panels? The U.S. Uh, so they are you know, taking a step which is making sense economically and uh, using it for competitive uh, economic advantage. And I think that we ought to take a, a page out of that playbook. Excellent. So um, just a quick, I'm, I'm not sure if I can frame this question well enough, but maybe we can pull the audience on a question. So if we decided that we do need to cool the planet and we decided that this technology did work, um, but what we knew was that it's going to have repercussions such that some areas of the world would get hit the right temperature, the right place, and other areas would suffer greatly. How many, you know, and by greatly I mean they, they, they would, you know, perhaps um, wouldn't be a case that an island would necessarily get wiped out, but that, um, that certain areas of the ocean would be destroyed and so certain communities would no longer have fish because of the balance in different areas. How many would, would feel like it would be worth it to do this if, much of the world would be better, even though some of the world would suffer. Anybody okay with that? Let me wonder, I mean, this is a utilitarian argument. It says, basically, what's, you know, what's the net benefit? What's the net harm? And if we can maximize benefit, minimize harm. So not a lot of you are raising your hands. So. My hand is not up. Okay, so, so, so this, is, you know, this is one of the things that, of course, we can never know until we do it. And, and we do have a bit of an experiment, though. So I was wondering, in the case of Pinatubo or other volcanic eruptions, what do we know about the differential effects in different areas of the planet? For example, locally, you would have the most emissions, the most blocking you know, or gases in the atmosphere. So what do we know about um, effects distantly and any, any way to predict what might happen? If- uh, yes. The, so the aerosols actually move through the stratosphere very quickly. And so they're well mixed in the atmosphere uh, around the globe uh, within basically two weeks. Uh, they're well mixed uh, pole to pole uh, in a little bit longer than that, you know, maybe a month or two. Um, so there's still, in spite of that 
fact that it was well mixed, uh, there were areas that were cooler than other areas. We didn't, you didn't hear about the great uh, freeze up of uh, Alaska after Pinatubo. It wasn't anything drastic like that, but there were areas that were cooler than other areas. But I think that you know, if we really knew that some area would suffer greatly, I, I don't think that uh, uh, people would deploy it, uh, would deploy uh, geoengineering. I think that it's just would be too hard to get some kind of consensus on it. And if somebody did, uh, I think that would be uh, looked at as an aggressive act. Well, that's where things get back to the governance question. Yes, very they interesting. Do. So who's responsible? So in theory, right now today, Let's say that I decided to use the several hundreds of millions of dollars I have in my checking account to buy aerosols and distribute them in the atmosphere. What laws are there to prohibit me from doing that? Um, <laughs> I don't know whether you know the law part on this, but is there? Yeah. Um, some, I, I'm not an expert in this, this area either, but there are some who have interpreted uh, the law regarding... Um, uh, the use of, uh, of gases during warfare uh, to be something that, that could be used uh, against uh, a single uh, actor in this uh, should they try to do something. Interesting. So, I mean, even though the purpose is not to necessarily target somebody, if there's a side effect of that, right. then that somebody is harmed by it. Right. So I, I think we're, we're going to need to stop there. I, and what's very clear is that this is a, a, a complex but important topic and one that probably warrants more than one session. So I want to thank our speaker tonight and all of you for, I hope, what was a really interesting, useful conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.